welcome to the TechLink Health Podcast, an on-demand source for the top trending healthcare topics and insights, delivered by key opinion and emerging leaders and as featured on the TechLink Health app. The healthcare industry is rapidly evolving, so our goal is to connect listeners to the most relevant insights, ranging from digital health to financial well-being to interesting side gigs. For more details, visit www.techlink.health. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the TechLink Health Podcast. I'm David Sanchez-Aren, and I'll be co-hosting this episode with Dr. Sarah Saman. One of the opportunities in healthcare today is how information is exchanged to help address and solve complex conditions. And at the core of this opportunity is the foundation of medical education and those that continue to share perspectives and expertise in specific areas of practice. Today's episode focuses on neurology and how the science will continue to help evolve the healthcare industry and the emerging technologies that will pave the way to the future. The topic is timely given that many recent advances in technology and considering how this trend will continue uncovering meaning and insights into the black box of the brain. This episode's guest is Dr. Michael Kentris. He's a neurologist, podcaster, and medical education advocate. During his work, Dr. Kentris has been involved in a variety of activities, most recently as a practicing neurologist, narrator for the American Academy of Neurology, as well as creator of the Neurotransmitters, a clinical neurology podcast. Dr. Kentris has a doctor of osteopathic medicine from Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine and completed a neurology residency program at Wright State University, as well as a clinical neurophysiology fellowship with the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. It goes without saying, Dr. Kentris has a passion for neurology and deep knowledge in the space. So we look forward to getting his perspectives on the podcast. So without further delay, we're excited to welcome Dr. Kentris to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me, David. I really appreciate it. So I know myself and I'm sure Dr. Saman too, we have a number of questions on the script and off the script here because your fascinating background, you're obviously very learned and experienced and you have a lot to teach about the brain and how the brain works. And to start, why don't you give our listeners some background and just take a moment to introduce yourself in a little bit more detail and Tell us about your journey in neurology. Sure. So I think like a lot of people who go into medical education, there were some unexpected twists and turns. I went into medical school thinking I had to go. I'm from a relatively small town. I go back, do family medicine, do that Norman Rockwell, small town doctor kind of thing. But I didn't really click particularly well with family medicine, but I did some rotations in neurology and similar fields. And I just found that was much more interesting to me, particularly. And so I ended up doing residency in neurology. And then one of my things that I really enjoyed for my undergraduate years was circuit analysis. I would consider myself a rank amateur, but like the electromagnetics of some of the things that you learn in your introductory physics classes and things like that always stayed with me. And I, I'm a bit of an audiophile, so I, I ended up like building some audio electronic stuff when I didn't have money to pay for it in college and things like that. And that kind of dovetailed into an interest in epilepsy and neurophysiology, which has a lot to do with recording signals, voltages, like very tiny voltages from the brain and processing those in various fashions. And what is the meaning that we glean out of that information? So that was all very interesting to me as a resident and eventually to that fellowship at Vanderbilt doing that. And for a few years, I went back to Wright State where I had trained as faculty and was part of the epilepsy division there doing like pre-surgical epilepsy evaluations and working in, the, in that division. And then like everybody else, the pandemic happened. We moved 
close to my wife's family up in northern Ohio. And so a much smaller department where there's, there's only a few neurologists serving a population of around five, 600,000 people. And obviously a massive mismatch in supply and demand, which kind of brought that a little more immediately to my mind was this phenomenon that we see where there's this sometimes a lack of clinical neurology education, right? There's a lot of neuroscience, which kind of like the basic building blocks of what is a neuron and things like that. But how do we actually apply that to the practice of medicine and make clinical decisions for our patients based off of our own diagnostic acumen? So that's how I've been shifting a little bit is more into that medical education stance. So how is that affecting what you do on the day-to-day now if you're focusing more on education? So on a day-to-day, not a huge amount, to be perfectly honest, right? I still, I go to the hospital, I see patients, I, I still do that same work. But in the time that I'm not at the hospital, I would say that's when things are a little bit different. One of the things that I started doing that I think maybe propelled me a little bit was a lot of our lectures for our residents, and this was when I was still at Wright State, were disrupted because we weren't doing in-person lectures and things like that. And So there was a little bit of lag, and the American Academy of Neurology puts out a bi-monthly continuing medical education journal, like latest and greatest hits of whatever topic has been selected by the editors. And so I started just recording these and would put them on a drive and give them to the residents to listen to while they're commuting or working or things like that. And I'd emailed the Academy to ask for permission, and they were gracious enough to ask me if I wanted to do that for them. And so it's almost been three years that that I've been doing that, and we've recruited some more narrators along with that. So it's been like a pilot project for this sort of audiobook format for the Academy, which has been, I think, pretty well received, I like to think. But a lot of the education that's out there is directed by neurologists for neurologists. So what about people who aren't neurologists? There's a lot of things that we need to know more in depth than, say, maybe a family practice physician does or an internist or whomever might be out there. And so trying to tailor that to the appropriate population has been something that I've been really digging into over the last year and a half and trying to gauge it correctly as someone who doesn't have a formal education in medical education. But it's, it's been a very interesting learning experience. And I've been doing Zoom lectures for a local psychiatry residency program on a regular basis, doing more regular lectures for our, the local internal medicine program, things like that. Trial and error to a degree, really, really trying to iterate on the things that are most common, most useful, what are the key concepts and what are the cognitive skills that people need to learn so that they can build on that themselves as they go forward from their own training. Oh, that's fascinating. Is that how you proceeded to get involved with the podcast, the neurotransmitters? And tell us a little bit more about that and how that connects with the medical education. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was one of those things where it's like, what what would, say, like a medical student or maybe an intern in another non-neurology or even neurology specialty need to know those fundamental building blocks about the cognitive processes or to borrow a term metacognitive processes that go into how do we come to a list of possible diagnoses? How do we pare those down? How do we evaluate them? And neurology is a little bit unique in as much as uh, if you ever heard any neurologist talk, they always love to harp on about localization. Where in the nervous system can you place a, an area dysfunction, a lesion, to elegantly explain all of the various complaints in front of you, which doesn't always work out, but that is the aspirational goal of the, the underpinnings of the specialty. So as far as the podcast goes, obviously, you can't really show a lot of pictures via audio format. So 
it's a lot of talking about basic concepts, having some interviews with like patient advocates, things like that, and other specialists who are in the space and trying to tailor that more to a more general healthcare worker audience. That's great. I, I just had a quick question about that. So you had mentioned in your education, you talked about neurophobia in the healthcare community and health literacy overall. So can you tell us more about the perspective of neurophobia? Why is it important? How can this be changed as we're moving to the future? So it ties in with something you said in your introduction, right? The brain as a black box. And that, that is a perception that even people who work in healthcare still have that perception that inputs go in, outputs come out, and what happens in between, who knows? So it's this thing where maybe, and I've, I've seen this, there, there are medical schools that they'll oftentimes have basic neuroscience staff. And when I say basic, I just mean they do bench research. It's not that it's basic per se, but they're not clinical faculty in the neurosciences. You end up going through training in medical school, and then maybe you do a residency. And there are some specialties where you don't have to do neurology rotations. And so you could potentially get all the way through your medical training without ever really doing a clinical neurology or having exposure to proper clinical neurology training. And so it's this fear, right? It's this fear of a patient with a neurologic complaint, whether it's weakness, numbness, confusion, on and on. And how do I approach these patients? What do I even do? Where should I point the MRI scanner, all these types of things. And then if I find something, what do I do with it? And so it was initially described back in the 90s by neurologist Ralph Josefowitz, and it was describing essentially undergraduate medical education, but you know, it's obviously several decades on from that. And we still see this in, in residence and training and then in attending faculty once they've graduated. And so it, it is this problem, especially when we look at the amount of neurologists in the country. I don't think it's unique to neurologists per se, in as much as there is a physician shortage nationwide. But for neurology, it's, I would say, there's roughly like, depending on what numbers you look at, around 15,000 in the country or so. So on the low side, and we have an inverted population demographic right now. We've got the baby boomers getting older. A lot of neurologic complaints tend to affect more elderly populations. When we talk about strokes, dementia, brain tumors, things like that. And so we're going to be seeing an increasing demand for services with a diminishing neurologist supply. In a study I saw a few years ago, the average age of a neurologist was in their early 50s. We're seeing these big mismatches. And then we're also seeing, like many other areas of the country, these certain coverage deserts. I'm situated in Youngstown, Ohio, which is about roughly 60 miles away from Cleveland, which has obviously some large institutions, and Pittsburgh, which similarly. But again, there's a huge radius outside of those cities, and there's maybe a half dozen neurologists within that radius. So it's one of those things where we're seeing, and it's not, again, not unique to neurology per se, but specialists tend to be localized more in big cities, metropolitan areas. And so we've got all these small towns scattered throughout the country where maybe the nearest specialist is going to be 100 miles away, which there are relatively straightforward neurologic complaints. And then there are ones that are not. And sometimes making sure that all of our internists, our primary care physicians out there will have the training or the experience hopefully available to them to identify which do they need to get assistance for, which can they manage themselves in these more resource-limited areas. So it sounds like through your work and your podcast and your educational outreach that you're giving physicians and other healthcare providers a framework 
to address some of these really complex issues. I like the term neurophobia because I do think that's true of a lot of us. The brain is so complicated, you can't really see it unless you scan it. And, you know, it can be very intimidating, I think, to a lot of people to try to sort something out. And I picked this up from someone I was talking to, and he wasn't sure where he had picked it up from, but Dr. Meltzer down in University of Texas, but he was saying that the brain is the only organ that you find out more about it by asking it questions. I, I just love like that concept. And really, that's what it comes down to is just asking questions. As much as we love to talk about examining the patient and all that, a lot of it does lie for so many aspects of medicine, but in neurology in particular, because you can't see a lot of things unless you have a, an MRI scanner. But asking questions, finding out what is the tempo of the complaints and it's kind of almost more of an art form rather than a science to a degree. So in the past on this podcast, we've talked about various neurotech devices, such as the Fisher-Wallace, the Muse, and the Neuralink technologies. What are some of the prevalent devices that you see gaining traction in the neurotech space and what might be in store for the future as that space continues to evolve? And then finally, what challenges or risks or potential dangers might need to be addressed along the way? Yeah, that is one of the really neat things about working in neurology and just neuroscience adjacent space is there's just, just a plethora of research that's just happening at a breakneck pace. But yeah, these brain-computer interfaces are like the, for the last couple of years, been this really hot subject. And we've been seeing to a very limited degree. So going back a little bit earlier to some earlier implantable neurologic devices, we had like deep brain stimulators, vagus nerve stimulators used mostly for things like Parkinson's disease or essential tremor, epilepsy, respectively. And so a lot of these early devices were mostly just like stimulation only, right? So there was a kind of a one way, there was no sensing. And so over the last few years, we're seeing more of these kind of closed loop systems. An example would be like the, the NeuroPace device, which is a sensing and stimulating device. So it's mostly for a medically refractory epilepsy, where it'll be able to detect a seizure and then send it like a, a desynchronizing wave, like almost like a defibrillator for the brain. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. And so there's there are these devices. And so obviously, when we compare that, the number of leads or contact points that we'll see in some of those early devices, four to 16, very low compared to some of these newer devices where we're talking more of microchip size. So I think some of the animal research that we're seeing on it is very promising. Even going back a few years, we would see some animal studies looking at devices set over the motor cortex in animals that had spinal cord injuries, and they would be able to, while on a, like a treadmill, they'd be able to walk with the lower limbs. And so I think that we're going to be seeing things like that in the not too distant future. And it does bring up some concerns because, again, I'm sure there's many different ways around this, and I'm not an engineer by a long stretch, but we do see a kind of wireless devices being integrated into some of these. And as anyone who has any, even the most minimal background in computer science like myself knows that if it has a wireless signal, it can be hacked. So it, it does bring up like these kind of like biosecurity types of things. Like with some of the Tesla stuff recently, you hear about people hacking people's cars and driving off with them and things like that. And, you know, what if, you know, someone with this device is in there and they're walking down the street and then there's someone who shuts it off. Again, I've always been a bit of a science fiction fan since I was in middle school. And you don't read that genre for very long without coming across some dystopian type things. 
which you don't want to be all gloom and doom the entire time. But I think with humanity's track record, you have to determine what is the worst possible application of this technology, because someone will probably do it. People in research, they're always, it's a trope for a reason, right? These eye to the sky scientists who are with these amazing ideas and things that can very much help people who are paralyzed, who maybe have locked-in syndrome where they can't move any of their extremities from a stroke, or ALS where they have progressive paralysis of their limbs. And they're able to use these devices to communicate and potentially do even more. And obviously we want to help these people, but, but yeah, there, there's always the dark side of what those could potentially be. I never thought about hacking or cybersecurity as part of an, any, even a concern with biotech devices, but man, that's very real. Yeah. Anything with a wireless connection could be potentially. And a lot of these kinds of interfaces are being introduced as ways to overcome different disabilities that people have been afflicted with. But I was listening to the Human Brain Project podcast this last month or so, and they were talking about integrating different things. And one of the guests had talked about how a government had approached him about potentially using devices in healthy subjects to help them maintain attention longer on like military missions and things like that, right? So then we move beyond helping people regain function to enhancing function and you get into some really, I think, gray ethical areas, right? So like, let's say it's commercially available. Let's go down, down the rabbit trail, but let's say someone working in finance, if someone, your competitor has got some implant that can make them stay awake longer avoid decision fatigue, process information faster, you're going to be at a disadvantage against that other person unless you also get the implant. And so now we have this kind of two-tiered system. If everyone remembers back to the movie Gattaca a number of years ago, right? It's the same thing, but with tech instead of gene editing. But I think we would be a little naive to think that's not a very real possibility as this technology evolves, and it almost certainly will. Definitely getting into bioethics there. <laughs> yes. Is there any, are there any other ethical concerns related to technologies that you can see? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, right. So even with the current devices we have now, and even things as simple as like a handheld device that you hold up to like your, where your vagus nerve is in your neck to help with like headache control. Most of these aren't covered by insurance. And so we wind up with who are the people who will be able to afford these devices, afford these technologies as they develop, especially the cutting edge technology, the non-surgically implanted, right? Obviously surgery is going to escalate those costs even higher. And so we are, even in these very low technologic devices, we're still going to be looking at people who can and cannot get them. So I think we're already seeing that to a degree. If you talk to anyone who talks about the state of healthcare in the United States, I think a lot of people would say that we're already there. But with a lot of these devices that are coming to the market, while they are very impressive in terms of minimizing systemic side effects as opposed to medications, tolerability, and the efficacy for a lot of them is pretty reasonable considering. But uh, yeah, the, the cost is just puts them out of reach for a lot of the average consumers. Yeah, we definitely see that in cases like Parkinson's where there's brain stimulators and trying to get those covered for patients and get them to centers where that technology is available, that's not always a straightforward process. So even at this very rudimentary stage of implantables, we're coming up against that. Yeah. And to tie that into what we were talking about earlier, you need subspecialized neurologists, right? Like for Parkinson's, a movement disorders trained neurologist is going to be determining who is and who is not an optimal candidate for those types of implantable devices. And again, 
there's a long travel distance for a lot of people throughout the country, let alone the rest of the world. There's like the geographic, there's the financial aspect. So there's definitely going to be some logistical and societal aspects to, to what is the benefit despite developing these kind of impressive technologies. Who will benefit from them? How can we get them to the people who would best benefit from them? Who will assess these patients to determine who are these people? And I think that just opens up that whole, you know, to tie it back in, educating the medical population so that we're able to better offer these people and get them rooted into the right system so that they can hopefully get the right treatments. Yeah, those are big questions. I do have a question about AI since ChatGPT has exploded across the world in the last few months. I've heard a lot about OpenAI too. What do you think the role will be in emerging technologies like that, AI in particular? What role do you think they'll play in integrating existing technologies and practices? I think it's very interesting. I did play around with ChatGPT over the last few weeks as it's been out. And it's interesting, but I think there's still some bugs to work out when it comes to like medical technologies. I, I did a very basic little clinical vignette, and I asked it to create a differential diagnosis, just a list of possible diagnoses for it. It was like a classic vignette for Guillain-Barre syndrome, so it's just progressive inflammatory neuropathy that kind of affects the sensation and the strength in your limbs. and gave it a question stem, essentially, that any third-year medical student should be able to sort out without too much difficulty. And in one version, it didn't even include that syndrome in like the top five of its possible diagnoses. I tweaked things around a little bit and it was able to get there. So I think that obviously the AI will continue to improve as these things tend to go. But I think it's a question of what data sets are we feeding into it for these large language models and what are they drawing out of in terms of their predictive text. So I think that if we were able to feed in like more primary medical literature and things like that, which a lot of it's probably not pulling because they're behind paywalls and things like that. So I think if we have that kind of a database where we're taking like decades or hundreds of years of medical case reports and studies and things like that, I imagine you could probably get some very impressive like diagnostic algorithms and things like that coming out of it. As it relates to like devices and things like that, again, a little outside my wheelhouse, but I've seen some people talking about how you can use it to create coding and things like that, which may have some role. But I think what we're seeing a lot is that it's good for providing maybe inspiration and then editing that down. But the caveat that I've seen a lot of people in this space talking about is that it will generate things that are false. If you ask it to write a little paper about a subject that you're familiar with and provide citations, it will make up citations out of whole cloth. But if it's an area you're not familiar with, you won't recognize that. And you're like, oh, this all makes reasonable sense. But if you know what it's talking about, you're like, this is nonsense. And it says it with such confidence. So I think that that's the point that we're at right now. But I think that as they curate its information input, we'll probably see it being improving. And it's uh, something that medical education podcasters have talked about. Bedside Rounds is a favorite of mine. But uh, he talks about medical epistemology and like, kind of these computer models that have gone back to the 50s and 60s in terms of data analysis. And so I think this is the newest iteration of that. And so will it be better? I don't know. They've been predicting the end of the physician as diagnostician for 60 years now, and it has yet to materialize. So I think it will be a useful tool, but I think you will still need physicians and other diagnosticians to help accurately identify this is a good thing to think about, but I don't know that it's necessarily the correct answer. So I think it's going to help more with that generative process rather than like being the definitive end answer. I hope so, because when I'm in a crisis, in an urgent medical situation, I don't want just an algorithm analyzing me. 
I want a human. Right. Like the movie Idiocracy, where you just step on the platform and it tells you what's wrong. (laughs) Thinking about that type of AI, I think a lot of people, especially recently as the chat GPT has taken over in the news, think of it as a form of cheating or a way that people can gain the system. But I wonder what you think about this type of technology perhaps being used for research questions. Do you have a, any ideas about that? Yeah. So I, I haven't done that myself. But for those who aren't on med Twitter, I think it's a very useful place. I've learned a lot from following some different physicians and researchers on there. But one gentleman in particular, he has been focusing a lot on that exact aspect. And it seems very promising thus far to plug in your area of expertise and be like, write an outline, generate some questions based off of whatever kind of parameters you care to put in. And there is this cottage industry springing up of AI prompts writing and, you know, how to best tailor the parameters for the AI system that you're using. And so I think we are really seeing that. And I think that is a very interesting area that that seems to be developing very quickly. That's fascinating. Interesting. I do have a couple other questions that just that came to mind. Just some of them are anecdotal from things that patients have told me, usually in the emergency department. But what would you say, this is as a neurologist, to a patient that comes to you and that's having seizures and says that they're treating their epilepsy with anything that's cannabis-based. I've heard CBD by itself. I've heard smoking marijuana products to treat yeah, epilepsy. So, what do you this is right that? in my wheelhouse. So I've had this conversation many times before. So I would say it depends. So CBD in particular, right? There actually is an FDA-approved medication called Epidiolex, which is purified cannabidiol. So there is evidence, and it works well, is what I'd say. It works as well as any other anti-seizure medication on the market, which is to say most of them, when we talk about seizure responder rate, is in the range of 30 to 40%. And, you know, it sits in that range as well. It has interactions with other medications like many other things do. One of the main problems with CBD in particular, and when we talk about the prescription brand, it is much higher concentration, much higher doses than what is really available, like from most dispensaries. Like it's significantly higher, but it has a very high first pass metabolism. So anything that goes in orally, about 90% roughly is going to be metabolized out. So you have to take a lot. And so there have been some people looking into like transdermal delivery systems and things like that for CBD specifically. With marijuana, more generally speaking, I'm not a fan, to be honest. Not anything to do with the legality or lack thereof, but because there is a mix in most marijuana plants of anti-epileptic as well as pro-epileptic compounds. And so you don't really know what it is that you're getting. So there's just, there's an inherent uncertainty. And again, just anecdotally, I haven't met anyone who has been like regularly using marijuana for epilepsy that has actually had good control of their seizures. Again, that's my anecdata. That's been my experience, which is much less than yours, but I definitely wanted to ask the expert. Yeah, but but no, the, as far as CBD goes, it it's not going to, what I usually say, it's not going to hurt anything. As long as you make sure it's not interacting with your other medications, just have a talk with your doctor. There's a a handful or two of anti-seizure meds that will interact with CBD. So you just need to be aware of that because it might make it hit a little harder or it might cause the metabolism of some of your anti-seizure drugs to, to be altered slightly. So that would be my one caveat as far as that piece. Cool. Interesting. I'm curious, just to shift back to what we talked about earlier in the podcast, 
you've been very generous in sharing your expertise with a range of students and people, I'm sure, from across the globe. And this is something that really is fairly new to the post-pandemic or peri-pandemic area. So what do you see as the future of this type of remote teaching and how do you envision that over the next several years? So smarter people than me, I think, have called it like the democratization of education which I, I think is great. And we, in particular, there's one guy who in neurology, Dr. Aaron Berkowitz, who has been doing stuff like this. I'm just dipping my toe in, but he's in it up to his neck. He's been doing this kind of global neurology education stuff for years, as far as I'm aware, and does these like interactive clinical vignettes through something called the clinical problem solvers. And one of their cases a week is a neurology case that he precept essentially. And I think we're seeing more of that where we are seeing more teachers, not just from neurology, but just from all walks of medicine who are working on like how do we, can we tune up people's diagnostic acumen and improving people's sensibilities in terms of making sure that people even in more remote parts of the country or the world are their physicians are like, oh, I've heard of this, or I know exactly what to do, or I don't have access to that, but I know the next best thing to do would be X or Y or whatever. So I think that's only going to expand. I think we're, we're seeing it a little bit with like undergraduate college stuff with the University of Phoenix and stuff like that for years. And you working in medicine as well. I think you both know that change tends to be very slow, Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the hill. And I think the pandemic, there are some silver lines to take out of it. And I think this jolt to medical education has demonstrated that, yes, we can achieve similar outcomes in many spheres without having people glued into the lecture seats necessarily. And I think that gives us access. We could get the best teachers on whatever subject in the world to give lecture to hundreds of thousands of people. And so I think ultimately that's what we'll be seeing is that these kind of big conferences or class halls will be a downward trickle to all these students across the world, at least in an idyllic world. That's, I think, what we would see. I think we'll get there to one degree or another. But yeah, it's, I think it's a lot of it is still like, how do I verify the quality of this education? How do I know what the teacher is saying is accurate? Are their sources up to date, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're still in that stage where we need to make sure that we're having appropriately like credentialed and reliable instructors vetted for the general population. But I think that is where things are heading, at least from my perhaps overly optimistic perspective. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's great. Speaking of that, I do want to ask you about your podcast. I was curious because, you know, we touched on that a little bit in the intro, but can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, I've been experimenting, let's say, with formats and in the public space. But my goal is essentially neurology for the non-neurologist or for the early neurology training. And sort of basic neurology principles in terms of some very basic neuroanatomy, talking about different disease states, things that you would need to know if you run into a patient who has a certain condition, some discussions with patients with different conditions or patient advocates who things that they would want their healthcare providers to be aware of that things may not necessarily be in those unwritten rules of medicine per se. And then I'm also talking a little bit about like recent journal publications and things like that that might have more applicability in the clinical sphere as opposed to more like what we're talking about today with the futures of things. Sure. Oh, that sounds really helpful for people like me. I didn't go to medical school and uh, people that are working clinically or just, or maybe even helping a family member dealing with a neurological condition. It's yeah, very Yeah. Uh, and that's, I've, some of the nurses I work with have started listening to it, which I didn't tell them about it. Someone found out about it on their own. Oh, really? <laughs> 
<laughs> but they've they have found it useful on our neurology unit and i have run into some random family members or friends and things like that who have started listening to it who aren't medical at all not all of them are necessarily aimed at the general population but some of the conversations are at that level i would say if you're interested in learning more about clinical neurology it's a low bar to entry, generally speaking. And even for those of us who did go to medical school and had neuroanatomy in medical school, you go through school and you don't really realize how relevant some of this information is until you actually confront it maybe years later in a patient and you don't quite remember what it was that you learned. So to have this kind of ongoing sort of dialogue through your podcast could be valuable to physicians and people in healthcare of all types. And that is really my goal is to, like you said, create something that's out there for people who want to be involved with it and just be accessible, so to speak. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation and, you know, just understanding how we can use all these different technologies to educate people in healthcare, educate the public, educate our patients, and, and also to learn more about the technology. It's really been very eye-opening and very interesting to see how you've been able to take these newer ways we have of communicating to build more trust and develop a deeper understanding. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to come in and talk with you. I appreciate very much the questions. It's always good to, to re-examine our own reasons for what we're doing. And having these kinds of conversations always help reaffirm that to a degree for me. That's such great advice. And just to shift back to what we talked about earlier in the podcast, when you think about the future of healthcare with regards to the quality of treatment and cost, what are some of the implications for neurology and neurotech that you see going forward? Yeah, I think we did touch on a few of those aspects. So to expand on that a little more, I think it's going to be matching the clinical supply with the developments that are coming down. So I'm a relatively junior attending, I would say. Graduated residency in 2017, six, six years out, only five if I count my fellowship. But even in that short period of time, the way that a lot of practice has changed in the management of fairly common disorders, like the acute management of stroke, the medication options for multiple sclerosis, even migraine disorders, is significantly different from when I graduated. So I think containing that continuous, I know it's, it's almost a tongue-in-cheek thing to say in, in medicine, right? Lifelong learning is important. And so making sure that, one, that our currently available population of physicians and advanced practice providers remains up to date on the evolving treatment landscape for all these neurologic conditions, whether that is gene therapies, monoclonal therapies, device-based therapies, all of these, because those are all expanding at a rapid rate, especially monoclonals in particular, for a whole host of different conditions. But making sure that we have enough access for the patient population who's going to need them, because I would always get irritated when administration would ask me to shorten my appointment slots because the whole point of them coming to, to see me as a neurologist was because they had a complicated problem that one physician already was having difficulty with. So they wanted a, a consultation. And so you're asking me to spend less time, and again, right, not to veer into the healthcare landscape too hard of a left there, 
But these are complicated patients, right? The brain is a complicated organ. The tongue-in-cheek thing to say is every specialist thinks their organ is the most important, right? I think that's a universal truth. Any organ that can be transplanted isn't essential, right? Uh, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, again, very tongue-in-cheek, but it is. It's complicated, and a lot of times we need to get... It all lies in the story. So we need to call up family members. we got to get collateral information from people who have witnessed the person's behavior in their home environment. Just as a... For instance, I had this one patient years ago, the nicest elderly woman, but she would come in with her sister. And this woman lived alone by herself. And you could have a very pleasant conversation with her. But as soon as you asked her, what's today's date? She wouldn't be able to tell you. Or I would tell her, like, I think you have Alzheimer's dementia. And then literally, immediately after that, I asked her, what did I just tell you? And she would not be able to repeat it back to me. So these are the kinds of people that are showing up in neurology clinics. And so shortening time with these patients is going to result in more misdiagnosis and diagnoses. So it's really important, I think, to make sure because there aren't going to be enough neurologists to catch everybody. There just isn't going to be enough labor in the market. So making sure that for less complicated issues that the kind of frontline healthcare workers are able to identify what the options are, I think is going to be essential. In terms of the availability, insurance coverage is, and I think it's something that's growing more and more in the public consciousness, where you're hearing all these stories about denials from insurance companies and things like that. And I know a lot of people like to demonize doctors for having higher salaries. But at the end of the day, if you look at like the breakdown, it's a very small proportion of healthcare costs in the country. If anyone hasn't seen it, I do recommend, I think it was from Publica? If I'm remembering that right, there was a recent article about a young man who with ulcerative colitis and like the long circuitous denial of his medications and the consequences that had on his health. But similarly, right, we're talking about comparable costing technologies. And I don't think there's any reason it would be different in the neuroscience space. So we have these crossed purposes, right? They aren't working with the same motivating principles that, that those of us who are actually taking care of patients are, right? They're, they are profit-driven entities. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that per se, except when you start breaking the rules. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing is that these rules are breaking down a little bit when we're trying to get access for what, to be fair, are relatively less common conditions. Most neurologic conditions are on the rarer side. Even something common like epilepsy is about 1 in 26 people. Something like migraine, we're talking maybe like more around 30-ish percent, 30 to 40, depending on what data you look at. So we're going to be fighting those same battles that those in other specialties are fighting with getting access to treatment. So I think if we don't address the underlying problems, we're going to wind up with these amazing technologies and it's just going to be pie in the sky wishing. I was like, oh, I wish I could get you this treatment, but it's incredibly expensive. For instance, neurology does have the dubious distinction of having some of the most expensive medications in healthcare on their on their list. So for spinal muscular atrophy, right, a degenerative neurologic condition that affects the motor neurons, the nerves that go to the muscles, for type 1 that affects newborns, there is a gene therapy that a single you only theoretically only need a single dose, but one dose is 2.1 million dollars. Oh. Right? My goodness. Wow, that's wow. more than other ones I thought were expensive. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like the less expensive ones are like a half million a dose and you need multiple doses. So oh is my it any goodness. cheaper? Probably not. And so, yet for that person, that means the world. Right. That means their life. If they don't get it, they will die. 
So it's one of these things where it's, we have these treatments. How can we get them to people? How can society afford them? And all these kind of more ethical questions more than anything else. I don't pretend to have the answers, but I do know that as we continue to push the envelope with more and better treatments for all of these conditions, the costs are just going to continue to expand. And if we can't keep up from a societal perspective, we're just going to have, again, this kind of two-tiered system where we have the haves and the have-nots just on another level. Yeah, it's eye-opening when you think about the difficulty in access both at the low tech and being able to spend the time with the patient that is so constrained and at the high tech and having the money to be able to afford some of these really high-end treatments. But both sides of that equation are constrained by the systems that we're dealing with. It's a national dialogue, probably an international dialogue that's going on, and it'll be something that we are all invested in following and all invested in the outcome. And I'm sure you see this in your own practice as a physician coach, right, where we talk about burnout and the contributing factors, right? This perceived impotence to to care for people, right? You're taking care of people for their treatments. You know that you can't get them and you can't change things. And so you wind up with this kind of existential just defeatism that's nothing I do matters. And how can people sustain a healthy mindset in that situation for long? I would say a lot of people can't. Yeah, it's a tough time in healthcare. And yet we do have so much to look ahead to. And I think that if we as physicians and other leaders in healthcare can take a stand and make clear that lives of people are at stake and people's well-being is at stake. Maybe as more people are touched by these these issues, we'll have a stronger voice. Yeah. I've been seeing some of those movements online as well, and they do give one hope. Like you said, I don't want to be too much of a black pill type of guy. I am optimistic at the end of the day. But there, there are definitely some real challenges in the healthcare space in front of everybody who's practicing. So as we're getting ready to close our interview here, which has been incredibly insightful, I do have a couple other questions related to neurology, just that I thought I'd run by you as a, a lay person that knows enough just to be dangerous. Do you have any insights that would help your average person related to quality of life? Because people in technology in particular are very interested in optimizing their life. So it could be related to a sleep cycle, screen time, circadian rhythms, anything as a neurologist that could help us to improve our quality of life. No, I think that's what you mentioned is probably one of the most important things is sleep. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. So there have been numerous studies that if we are sleep deprived, if we are not having good quality sleep, our emotional stability fluctuates, our ability to make consistent and logical decisions deteriorates, our reaction times decrease. And then in the longer term, we also see more more of a stress inflammatory situation. So we see more other diffuse systemic health issues. And then something a little more recent in the literature, and this is a word I always enjoy saying, is that the brain's glymphatic system. So think lymphatic with a G. So glymphatic system. So it's like the lymph system of the brain. So current theories are saying that we need sleep because we get these higher pulsations of the glymphatic system in the brain, washing away these abnormal proteins, right? So we think like these pre-Alzheimer's type proteins that deposit in the brain. So by sleep depriving ourselves, we're putting ourselves at risk also for things like dementia 30, 40 years from now. 
So I think focusing on good quality of sleep is important and people's sleep can be disrupted for a variety of reasons. But when we go to the kind of the non-pharmacologic side of things, good sleep habits are important. Having a routine, having a dark, quiet room, don't be looking at screens as you're lying in bed. Don't have the TV on as your white noise generator if you need white noise. And for people who do have trouble sleeping, it's more of like almost a behavioral therapy type protocol where you go to bed. You know, if you aren't falling asleep within about a half hour or so, you should be getting out of bed, go to another room, sit in a, a quiet, not too high stimulating room. Maybe you read a book for 15, 20 minutes. Maybe you do the old fashioned warm glass of milk, but then you go back to bed, right? The bed is for sleep only. And so sitting there with your racing thoughts, spiraling out of control is not going to help. It's just going to make the bed a place of anxiety. So getting out of bed periodically, if you are someone who struggles with insomnia, is important. I know a lot of my patients in the past always look at me like, you want me to just do that? I'm like, why don't you try it for a while? And if it doesn't work, then we can try some different medications and things like that. Well, let's try it without first. And for a fair number of people, it does work. For those who do have poorly controlled anxiety or depression or things like that, getting the appropriate treatment can be helpful for that aspect as well. So a lot of times it does take a multimodality approach, the behavioral changes, plus or minus medication, if someone's overweight, making sure they don't have sleep apnea, all these different things that tie into it. So yeah, I think good sleep is probably the, one of the most important things. I know when I'm on call, my sleep is not good. And by the end of the week, I am more irritable than I have reason to be at times. And then within a day or two, I'm, today's my first day post-call. But after being off call for just a couple of days, I feel like an entirely different person. And that's just because I'm getting more like seven, eight hours of sleep as opposed to five or six, which it does make a difference. It accumulates over time. We do generate these sleep debts and they're not that easy to pay off. Yeah, I can definitely vouch for that. I had about 35 years of sleep deprivation. <laughs> and I think this year has been my catch-up year. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. It's yeah, it's amazing just what a good night's sleep does. I don't know that there's anything that feels quite as good as that. I have a seven-month-old baby, so I can't talk much about <laughs> oh, sleep no. deaths right now. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. Yeah, that's okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for your insight. It's been really informative and a great chance for me to ask questions. Hey, it was my pleasure. Yeah, this was a fantastic discussion. Yeah. Any final advice for people wanting to stay connected to innovations in the neurology space? So there are a few like news site collators or collectors rather, but they're always a little bit more superficial. Like neuroscience news is not a bad one, but they're more like, look at this curiosity. For people who are really wanting to dig more into the research, you're really looking more at like the online journals, like the primary literature. So Journals like the Green Journal from the American Academy of Neurology, Brain, things like that. And then, unfortunately, each society has their own, like the Movement Disorder Society or the Clinical Neurophysiology Society. So a lot of like, really cutting-edge stuff is going to be more in journals than anywhere else. So, at, But on the plus side, a lot of them do also do podcasts, so those can be good places to check out what the, like, the current hot research is also. But, uh, but yeah, like when we're talking about like the animal level trials and things like that, that's really going to be more there. There's not really great sources for those outside of that, other than like kind of the general science publishing, which it, again, it depends. Like if you want to, like, like how do they process this signal in MATLAB or things like that, those will be more in the primary literature. If you're looking for more just like what's on the horizon, then there are places like Neuroscience News and things like that should be able to provide some pretty, like a broad tasting, if you will. Great. And of course, we're always interested in book recommendations or any other content you're recommending. Any thoughts there? 
Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to go a little old fashioned. So in terms of clinical neurology, there, there are a few books that I always recommend for people who aren't in medicine, but are interested in hearing more about neurologic stories. There was an author, he passed away a few years ago. His name was Dr. Oliver Sacks. And so he wrote a number of books about different like neurologic cases. The kind of the prototypical one of his is called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which kind of goes into like these different neurology cases and talks about like how do they present? What does it act like? I would also say for people who are more in practicing healthcare, two books that I recommend for people who are looking for good foundations is Clinical Neurology and Neuroanatomy by Dr. Aaron Berkowitz, and a book that I just picked up this last year called How to Think Like a Neurologist by Dr. Meltzer. But that one is also a case-based thing, and it goes through like the patient presents with progressive weakness and numbness. How do we think about this? How do we approach it? And each one's three, four pages long. Very well written. I love it. And I've been recommending it to all of my medical students who've been coming around on rotation. So the two sides, from my own side, I'm going to go, can I go for a fourth book? Go for it. I just recently picked up The Entangled Brain by Dr. Louise Pessoa as well. In neurology, we think about speech is here and vision is here and memory is there. And we are seeing that if you look over the last decade, this move from the traditional like focality of different neurologic functions into more of a network-based concept. And it's obviously it's called the entangled brain. So it's exploring that a little bit in a different different kind of mindset. So I've only just recently started that one, but it's it's been interesting so far. Fascinating. I actually always I make it a required reading for people in my addiction treatment program, Switch on Your Brain by Dr. Caroline Leaf. That's a fascinating read for me coming from the addiction side. Wow, this is really fascinating. It's been a it's been a great discussion. Dr. Saman, do you have any other questions or anything for Dr. Kentris? No, this was fantastic. I really enjoyed the conversation and really look forward to reading more about the books that you've recommended and listening to your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. So where can we go to learn more about you or follow the newest things that you're up to? So uh, I'm on Twitter at Dr. Kentris. That's just D-R-K-E-N-T-R-I-S. I can also find me on Spotify, Apple, all that with the, the Neurotransmitters, a clinical neurology podcast. And I have emails in those show notes on my podcast as well. If people have suggestions or different things they want me to talk about, I am certainly open to those. But yeah, those are probably like the two two best places to reach out to me. Thank you so much. It's been a great talk. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this episode. TechLink Health is a healthcare advisory platform for consumers and organizations to stay informed with the latest insights while connecting with healthcare experts for telehealth, e-consults, and consulting services. For more details, visit www.techlink.health.